Um, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 11, 12, and 13 today as we conclude uh, our time in Ezra and Nehemiah. So far in Nehemiah, we've seen that the Lord has been at work in Nehemiah's life, uh, been at work in Nehemiah for the good of Jerusalem, but we have discovered that even more than that, it's been at work for the good of the people of Israel. Um, we have the narrative of the account of Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem and leading into the rebuilding of the city's walls. And, and at the time, just be reminded when uh, Nehemiah was uh, thinking of Jerusalem and hearing that the walls had not been rebuilt, he was reminded that the city still lay in ruin. Uh, it wasn't that the city was hustling and bustling and everything was going about and people were living in the city. That was not the case. The temple had been rebuilt, uh, but the city still laid in ruin. There were few people living there. There was uh, not a lot of activity there, except when folks were coming to the temple. Uh, there was no commerce. There wasn't the hustle and bustle of city life. There wasn't the sign of that kind of life in the city. And and I know for those of us who live here, and we all live here in this area, uh, there's always the hustle and the bustle. Sometimes we don't like that. But none of us would want to live in a ghost town. None of us would want to live in a place where businesses were closed and it was depressed and there was a spirit of oppression. And yet that was much the way that the city of Jerusalem was at the time. There was hardly any city life. So in chapters 1 through 6, we read the account of the walls being rebuilt in 52 days. It almost sounds unbelievable, but Nehemiah came back and the people encountered hard and arduous work and they worked side by side and the project we saw was completed in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7 last week, we didn't spend a lot of time there, but there was a census of sorts that was taken. And I don't know how, if you've been reading through Ezra and Nehemiah, and even in some of our scripture readings when we've read longer texts, there's just name after name after name. Some of you may have found that boring. Some of you may have found it interesting. Some of you may just have, like me, you found it difficult to pronounce all those names that we're not accustomed to pronouncing. And you may have even been wondering, did he say that right? Or am I reading that right? Uh, but the fact is, is that every name there is important. Uh, the Holy Spirit of God placed it upon Ezra to list those names, and they're important. Last week, we gave attention to chapter 8 and the, the reading of God's Word, and we saw that coming out of, of the people gathered as one man listening to the Word of God read, there was this heavy sense of conviction and confession that came upon them, and they confessed their sin. And, and then in chapter 10, uh, we saw what happened. Uh, we saw that they came and they renewed uh, their commitment uh, to God. They reordered their lives in accordance with God's Word. And we kind of landed there, and we needed to. And as we've seen at several points in Ezra and in Nehemiah, it seemed like the story could end. It seemed like the story could end. At any point in time, we would come to uh, a high place. Uh, the temple was built. It was a good place to end. They worshiped. Uh, the wall was built in chapter 6. Census was taken to say, Okay, here are the people that are, are here now, and, and they are important people. And we could end there because the project had been completed, whether it was a building project or whether it was a great worship service or, or even last week we could have ended seemingly at chapter 10 because they renewed their commitment to God. And how better to leave a story than to say they came and they heard God's word they acknowledged their sin, they confessed it, and they renewed their lives. And yet, that has not been the way the story has gone, has it? It seems as though the high or the great sense of accomplishment only pointed to more hardship, more challenges, uh, and even more failures. Uh, those of you who are basketball fans and maybe you were an Indiana fan, maybe you weren't, maybe you were a Bobby Knight fan, maybe you weren't, uh, really great coach, but 
but since his death, there's been a, a lot of YouTube stuff that has been brought back about Bobby Knight and his coaching career, and, and, and he was hard. And one of the things that I was reminded of what he said, he said, you know what? He said, uh, we go out and we play and we have our accomplishments. He said, uh, why do we want to sit back and pat ourselves on the back? He said, we need to buckle down and we need to move forward because there's another game to play. Uh, there's always something else. And his point was, is in life, there is always something else. Always something else. And it seems like that that is probably the way it is with us. And I wonder if that's been your experience in life. I wonder if your life has been a series of ups and downs, not just with ups and downs and challenges. We've already looked at temptation and Adam pointed out, temptation is not a bad thing. Succumbing to temptation, succumbing to temptation is a bad thing. Falling into temptation is a bad thing. But temptation's not a bad thing. Has our lives been marked by falling in the midst of temptation? Been a series of ups and downs. If your testimony is best stated as a life of spiritual highs and lows, a few sweet times of intimacy where your commitment is great and, and you're enjoying service and ministry, uh, but then has it been laced with periods of failures and sin? It, it seems that's common pattern. It certainly was in the case of Israel's life because isn't that what we've seen as we've looked at Ezra, as we looked at Nehemiah, there would be these great times of revival. And then in just a few years, they would be right back where they started from, struggling with the same sins, dealing with the same temptations, falling in the same way, and then coming and recommitting their lives. And then that would go on for a few years, and then they would be right back around full circle. And I'm not saying that in a statement of judgment of them. I'm looking at it in my own life, thinking about your lives, thinking about our lives as believers, those times where we are constantly struggling with the same things. And we'll have victory for a season, uh, and then it will hit us again. Remember, we are considering the last hundred years of Israel's history uh, before a long period of silence takes place. Not that they cease to exist, it's just that there is no additional word from God. We might liken it to a season of receiving letters and phone calls and texts. Have you had those folks in your life where you are, are getting communication from them for a long time? And then all of a sudden it just stops and you wonder what happened. Sometimes you may text them and say, are you ghosting me or whatever the latest term is for forgetting about me. Well, th there was this long period of silence and though God wasn't ghosting them, uh, he was going to come to them and speak to them in a greater way than he'd ever spoken to them before. But this was where they were historically. And this was where they were as they were walking along in life. Today is the last message of this series. And I want us to see how these three chapters, the text encourages us when we experience seasons of failures, and this is a common word for Christian circles, backsliding. I'm reminded of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119 and 176, the very last word of that longest chapter in the Bible and that longest psalm. Here's what he said after he had had all that he had to say about the, the richness and the value of God's Word, this is what he said, I've gone astray. I've gone astray. Like a lost sheep. And then he points back to God. He said, seek your servant. In other words, please come and find me, for I do not forget your commandments. I want you to notice the psalmist hasn't forgotten the commandments of God. He hasn't forgotten the commandments of God, but he also hasn't lived up to the level of holiness that they call for. Isn't that what backsliding is? Not living up to the holiness that God's Word calls for. 
knowing God's Word, knowing what is true, knowing what is right, but not living up to it. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound familiar to you? Do you know someone that way? Or is it possible here today that that someone is me or that someone is you? I want to mention something before we look at the text and and how I believe our text is intended to bring us some help and hope as we deal with the ongoing sin and struggle in in our lives. And and, and you know what your sin is. You you, you know your weakest point. I I don't. You do. And it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit will, 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 will put His finger on it in your life today. And then that you would find help and hope. But I want you to hear this. The only way that we can deal with sin is our life is to do so in and through Christ. That's the only way that we can deal with sin in our life. Is to do so in and through Christ. Paul in writing to the church at Ephesus said, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin." In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. And then in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, we hear this. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, there's a lot packed in these two verses, and we are not trying to do an exposition on these verses I want you to hear and understand that we must see our sanctification in light of the justifying work of Christ in His blood. If we get that out of order, then we will never rightly deal with the sin that is in our lives. Hear those verses again in light of the justifying work of Christ's atoning work. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. When we begin in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the word. There's no condemnation, and there's no condemnation because the sin has been forgiven. The person has been redeemed. The person has been purchased from that sin, and that sin is not on them anymore. But as we also hear, the law of the Spirit of life has set us free, those who have trusted in Christ, set us free from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? It means no less than there is a victory that has been won over sin and temptation. And when we understand that in our justification, then we will see and long for our lives, our sanctifying work to match that which is absolute and sure in our justification. And I believe today at least Nehemiah helps us see some of the things that we can draw on and should draw on that will help us as we deal with this sin. And the reason why, and you'll see it when we get to chapter 13, is that it All this great stuff has happened. Nehemiah leaves for uh, uh, about 12 years, comes back to Jerusalem. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, it is as if everything that he had worked for, except the walls being built, had been destroyed. The commitment that we looked at last week in chapter 10 now has been reverted back to sin in the same things that they had made a covenant about, who they had committed that they would not do again and that they were going to commit to certain things. A little over a decade passes and they're right back where they were. I wonder, can you, does that look like a pattern in our life? Maybe it doesn't take a decade. Maybe it takes a day or 10 days or 10 weeks or 10 months, whatever that may be, where we're right back where we were before. And and the idea here and the thought is, is not to get this sense of, 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 of defeat. 
but is to look at the context of what God is bringing forth and showing us in this text that will help us. And, and, and they're very practical things. In fact, they are grounded in certain images that he has given us. It's the reason we started in Psalm 125 this morning because we were looking ahead and they were looking at Zion as a place of refuge and safety and care and strength. And we'll see today that we can do that very thing ourselves. I want you to write down four words if you're taking notes. And I just want to help us see in this text how I believe these four words, these four ideas are, are brought forth from our text. One is community. So the first word's community. The second word is covenant. The third is grace. And the fourth is submission. So there's community, covenant, grace, and submission. In chapter 11, and we referred to this and referenced it last week, but in chapter 11, the walls have been built. Okay? The, 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 the walls have been built. There's no one living inside of the city yet. And the whole idea was, was this city needed to be inhabited. By God's design, it needed to be inhabited. I want you to think about this. There is a Zion city that is being uh, and will be inhabited one day. It'll be inhabited by those who are citizens of that kingdom and citizens of that city. Whenever we begin to think about us dealing and struggling with the sin in our life, we have to begin at the very point of our justification. And that would mean for us in the course of this that the first and foremost question that we have to ask and answer is, am I justified? Not am I justified based on whether Christ can justify me or not. Not based on whether His atoning work justifies, but am I? I trusting in Him. One of the reasons that we read this whole part of, of, of chapter 11, the majority of it is names, just lists and lists of names and family members. But look at 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. There is in the course of this a, 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 an anticipation on their part of saying, hey, I, we want to be a part of what's going on in this city. Some chose not to, some couldn't for whatever reason, other things had to take place outside of the city so that the city life could continue and to go on. Uh, we know that, don't we? Um, some of you shop at Publix and some shop at Food Line and Harris Teeter and Lowe's Food. And uh, that food comes from people who live outside of the city. It doesn't come from that which lives inside of the city. But there is this point here that God has established this city, this fortress, this place of refuge, this place of ministry, this place of commerce, this place that it is to flourish with, with life and, and center their lives around the temple and others support it. But the point is, is that that needed to take place. There is this city, but more importantly, as we read the list of these names, we understand that they are talking about a community, a community of people that live and gather to support the things of God. I wonder today, are, are you a part of that community? Either in the course of this community, are you a part of that community by virtue of having trusted in Christ, having looked to God, looked to Zion and said, there is my life, there is who I trust, there is who I follow, there is who I obey. Or maybe even in the life of a local body, this local body even, is this a community that you know that you should be? in as much as you would know or want to be a part of. 
There is something in community life that enables us that as we are a part of that community and we understand the necessity of that community, there is a part of that community that helps us as we deal with the ongoing struggles of sin, the ongoing struggles of temptation. Because we are sharing in life with one another, but more importantly, we are seeing our lives as grounded in the context of a community, a community that has been bought and paid for and purchased and blood covered by the Lord Jesus Christ. We look there in chapter 11 and we won't read the names. I would encourage you to go back and read them. But it's name after name of people that are important and significant and who are a part of this community. And it's not just any community. It's not just the fact that they live close by. They're a part of a covenant community. That's the point. They're part of a covenant community and they're a part of a covenant mission. Look there in chapter 12 and verse 1, and we begin to hear, these are the priests and Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. He's going all the way back to the very beginning with that first group of exiles that come back. All of whom we know whenever we were studying Ezra did what? They had been vetted to know if they were in fact true Israelites. And if they were not true Israelites, in other words, if they couldn't trace their paperwork all the way back in their ancestry, if they could not trace it back and be tied to the people of God, then they were not a part of that community. And yet, since then, there has been an ongoing generation of people coming from that long ago, people who were still a part of the covenant community. I wonder today, Do we see ourselves and understand ourselves and the significance of being a part of that covenant community? Being a part of Christ, being in Him, being blood washed, being covered, being forgiven, being saved, being strengthened, and being helped. I believe that at least in part what is being said here is not just this narrative to give us a history of a group of people that we know nothing about, but to help us to see ourselves in light of those very people and in light of what is taking place in their life as a covenant people. It's interesting that Jesus is the author of a Another covenant. I was thinking about the covenants that were given. Adam was given a covenant. If we looked in Romans chapter 5, we would see that uh, it anticipated in Adam's covenant, a covenant that God made with him, people were affected. You know who was affected? All of Adam's descendants. In Romans chapter 5, we hear that wherefore by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, therefore all men have what? Have fallen under the curse of that sin, fallen in light of that sin. Everyone was affected. We were a part and are a part of a covenant that was established with Adam. Covenants always have in their mind other people coming that are connected to that. And it was in the case of Adam. We know that whenever God established his covenant with Noah, who were the people involved? His three sons. God had in mind in establishing this covenant that there would be three people that would be affected in addition to, in addition to Noah and, and then all that would come from them. And we know that is true when we follow the course of history. When he made his covenant with Abraham, who did he have in mind? He had Abraham's progeny in mind, which ultimately we know from Genesis chapter 12 affected who? All nations. God had in view all nations, all people, all languages, and all tribes. And then when he established his covenant with David, who did he have? He had David's family in mind. He had the the people in mind. He had children in mind. He had nations in mind. 
and that there would be coming from David a king who would sit on the throne of David, which was eternally established by God. Why is that important? Why is that important? Because as a covenant people, we see that there is something larger in mind. It's the generations to come. That's the reason when we read throughout Scripture, we are talking about God's Word going to generations. The next generation hearing the message of the gospel. The next generation having, having had upon their lives an opportunity to hear the gospel. It establishes the mission of the church. But more importantly, it helps us understand that the names of these people and our names are important. We hear that Jesus is the, is the one who guarantees a better covenant. Hadn't been long ago since we worked through Hebrews. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant mediates. The covenant that he mediates is a better covenant enacted upon better promises. The covenant with Abraham never promised eternal life. The covenant in giving the law that with Moses never promised eternal life in that sense. But the Lord Jesus Christ promises eternal life. Hebrews we read in chapter 8 and verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. And as we will in just a moment, we will come to the table, and you know what we will hear. In every one of the passages in the gospel, and in Paul, Having received this from the Lord, we hear that the juice that we drink is representative of the blood of this new covenant, a blood that washed away sin. And in washing away sin, empowered and enabled by the very things that we heard already this morning and our assurance of pardon that there is no temptation that has come upon us that is not common to man, but God has been faithful that in the temptation will make a way of escape or enable us to go through it. What bearing does that have on us as we think about sin in our own life? Well, we don't give in to it. We don't give way to it. But because we have been justified and because we have been forgiven, we live in accordance with that with a pursuit to fight the sin in our life. And we don't stop fighting it because we know that God has granted victory over it. So we don't live defeated. We live victorious, and we don't live presumptuously, but we live by faith, trusting in Him who has saved us. I believe this text points us to that because we see in chapter 12 that they come and they dedicate the wall. Now, we, again, we... We've been, talking about, we've been talking about building temples and dedicating temples and, and building an altar and dedicating an altar. And now we're here and this wall has been built. And, and there's nothing uh, other than the, the work of the gospel that excites me any more than building things. I love to build things. I love to have my hands on it. I love to do it. I love to be involved in it. Those of you who know me well know that. I get excited about building something. And at the end of that, you look back and you see what has been done and what has been accomplished. And there is, in the sense of that, a, a, an, an idea of dedication. But this dedication, that they're dedica when they're dedicating the wall, it is not just about dedicating the wall. It is about coming and realizing what God has done in the course of this work. In other words, there is a dedication and a setting aside and a sanctifying work in the course of what they do when they come to dedicate the wall. And there is in that worship. Notice in verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day, the day they dedicated it. It wasn't just we prayed and we just said, God, thank you for the wall. No, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced 
for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And here is the, the outcome of this worship. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Why is that significant? Because in the course of God's work in them and in this covenant community, there was such a spirit of jubilation and celebration because of what God was doing and had done in protecting them and holding them and keeping them. We sang just a moment ago, He will hold me fast. You get the sense of that? That the Lord Jesus Christ and His work will hold you fast? Not just hold you fast in the mess you're in, not just hold you fast in the mess that you will get in, but will hold you fast to deliver you out of that mess, not just eternally, but even while we are going through it. The Word of God bears that out. God's Word bears that out. And then notice in verse 44 of chapter 12, on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests, rejoiced over these things that God had established and set up. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers the gatekeepers, and according to the command of David and his own son Solomon. Do you get the sense of this? That God, in the course of this covenant, in the course of what he has done, has brought them about to help them to recognize the need for the purification of all things. And that was work toward seeing sin eradicated because God was doing that work. Does that make sense? Once we see and recognize what God has done through Christ in His justifying work, dying on the cross and shedding His blood, and that, and that, is, a, that, that is a real life blood covering that now purifies, enabling us to live fighting the sin and the temptation that we would struggle with. And we do that together in the course of this community, the covenant community. I was reminded as I was looking through this passage and studying it and just reading name after name after name, not trying to master the pronunciation as much as to realize that every name accounted for a person whose name was on a list. And that list was important. They didn't miss a person. Nehemiah duplicates the list of Ezra in going back. I thought about the number of times in Scripture that we hear about the book of life. Because that's what it was. It was a book of life. Over and over again. For those who just finished studying Philippians, you may have found it interesting. You want to turn there just so you get your reference point back. Paul mentions in relation to Euodia and Cynthia that they, their names were on in the book of life. Notice there in chapter, in chapter 4 in verse 1, and he said, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Cynthia to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. Whose names are in the book of life. Well, if there is a book of life then that would also cause us to think what? Well, there may just be a book of death, isn't there? It could be. We know that there's a book of life. 
And not everybody's name is written on the book of life. In fact, when we read through Revelation, we hear the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. Once it's there, it cannot leave. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it in everyone's name that has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction in the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And on and on we hear about this book of life. I believe these names, their service, their work, their commitment to this covenant are pointing to something incredibly important. And that is they point to the fact that they have life in Yadi. Now here's what happens. Look in chapter 13. We'll get to chapter 13. It's recorded, verse 1, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel. And this is pointing back to the time of the Exodus, be reminded, okay? That, that they didn't meet Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam, who was a false prophet, by the way, against them, hired, but hired Balaam against them to curse them, yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliasim, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. And remember, Tobiah, track, all, track him all the way back to Ezra. He was one of the ones that was resisting uh, Israel even coming back to Jerusalem and put up roadblocks to see the temple stopped and, and all that was going on there. Uh, was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by command to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came back to Jerusalem. I'm inserting that word, came back to Jerusalem, because that's implied here. I came back to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Elisab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, and then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber, and I brought there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Well, what's going on here? Nehemiah, remember, comes to Jerusalem, as we have said, and then after 12 years, he goes back. He's still the governor of that area, but he goes back to present himself to the king. And he stayed there for a period of time. Don't know how long. He was there with them for about seven months. He leaves and goes back, and he's gone for at least about 12 years because we know he came in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, and now he's there at the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, and he's asking to go back. And he goes back and what he finds is this. Is that the very enemy has been allowed to come into the temple grounds. And they have cleared out a house for him in an apartment. They have removed the things of God out of that dwelling. And they have put his own personal belongings in. And his own furniture. And he's allowed to live there. And when Nehemiah comes back. He says, what in the world's going on? Why is this man of all people living in a place that is designated for the things of God and the people of God? 
And what does he do? He cleans it out. Look in verse 10. He said, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. And then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouse. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses of Shemaiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah the Levite, and their assistant Hanan, and son of Zakur, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. And then Nehemiah prays this. And here I want you to hear the grace that he is appealing to. He's appealing to the grace of God and says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So not only have they allowed the enemy to move in, with the enemy moving in, they stopped taking care of the temple workers. And when not taking care of the temple workers, they had to go back and leave the city and go back to work instead of carrying on their responsibilities. They had to leave and they had not gotten what they were to get. And he comes back and he sees this and he sees that they have abandoned the service of God. He sees that they have sinned in this way and he writes that. Verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrrhenians also lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what's this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city. And now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Twelve years earlier, they had made a commitment to keep the Sabbath. Twelve years removed, and now they are sinning again. Verse 19, And as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors be shut, gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath, And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And then the merchants and sellers of all kinds and wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I I warned them and told them, uh, why do you lodge outside of the wall? If you do it again, I'm going to lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath And then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then hear his prayer. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In other words, spare me according to the covenant love that you have for me, appealing to the grace of in the love of God. And then in those days, also I saw the Jews who married women of Ashhod and Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashhod, and they couldn't speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women among the many nations? There was no king like him, and he was beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women. And one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of Elisheb, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Samballat the Hornite, who was another one of the enemies, by the way, if you'll remember, from Ezra. And therefore I chased him from me. 
Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. And then listen to his prayer. Remember me, O my God, for good. Why stress this? Because God has given us for our protection and our help in dealing with our sin, the reality of a community that is grounded in the covenant that has been established by the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we do? We trust in Him, rest in that community and in that covenant. Why is grace so important in that? Seems like Nehemiah's got it going on. Well, remember, Nehemiah hasn't separated himself from the people. Remember when he first started, he confessed that their sin was his sin? He knew his own heart. But he also knew the detriment of the sin of the people. And he comes to them, and I'm not holding up, commending, pulling people's hair and cursing them and beating them because of their sin. But it is interesting that in the course of this, he was serious enough about the sin of the people and understood how deadly and dangerous it was that he was willing to take extreme measures for what? For their purification and for their holiness. And then he comes and he appeals to the grace of God. And then out of that, he works to see the people submit to the Word of God. I thought about these things in relation to my own sin, my own struggles. my own failures, and I am reminded that apart from resting in the covenant of the blood of Christ, that I have no hope and you have no hope for forgiveness and restoration, and you do not have the ability to fight sin and death on your own, but in Him you have absolute victory. And you have strength to do that. That's why this is so important. And we come jointly together in a community and appeal to the grace of God and His forgiveness and in His strength and power to do what? To come and to submit to Him. I want you to take courage Look back at your worship guides and you'll see and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. You know that's a relatively short prayer that Jesus taught. Don't you find it interesting that in the midst of that short prayer of all the things that one would petition God for, and there are only six petitions, that one of the six and the last one, and not because it's of less importance, but I believe because it solidifies everything else, is the need for the grace of God in working for us to fight sin in our lives, to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then to hear again, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation 
he will also provide the way of escape that you may be enabled to endure it. That you may be able to endure it. For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Do we live up to the call of holiness of God's word? We build walls, we build churches, we come and worship, which was equivalent to their coming and offering sacrifices on the altar. We come and we will come and look at the final sacrifice and we point to him and what he has done for us every week. But in the course of that, in the course of that, How are we dealing with and grappling with the things of the heart as it pertains to our purity and our holiness and our seeking to bring honor and glory to Him? Would you pray with me? Father, I'm grateful today that you have been gracious to us and given us Christ. Father, we repeatedly say that we would have no hope apart from Him. I ask you today that you would cause us to feel it deeply to the very core of our hearts and it would penetrate the hardness of our hearts to cause us to feel a desperation toward that truth desperately enough that we would come running headlong to you if we have not yet trusted you. And that we would come running headlong to you for grace and mercy if we have. Father, you've given us the community of the church to help us in this endeavor, to help us as we seek to fight sin and, and as we present ourselves as a group of people before you to, to serve you and to carry on your ministry and work as they did even then. And yes, Father, even in the midst of their weaknesses, they, 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 they need to continue. We need to continue as they did need to continue to, to be restored and to walk consistent with you and your word. Would you help us as we encourage each other to do this and as we fall and appeal to your grace today. You're incredibly good to us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.